Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, dear friends, um, if I am perfectly honest, the readings for this morning are a bit of a doozy. So we see Christ in glory. We see him in majesty, lifted high above every other name. And we see a frightening Christ, a Christ who sits in judgment of the nations. In the gospel reading, we see his mildness and gentleness towards the sheep and his sternness towards the goats. Ezekiel poses a similar tension where the Lord is both comforting shepherd and righteous ruler. The shepherd promises the flock that he will feed them with justice. And it sometimes seems like Ezekiel is never happy unless someone's getting punished. <laughs> but reading, this, uh, reading Ezekiel comprehensively, there's a great promise as well. The intuition is that the peace of the shepherd and the right rule of the prince are inseparable that without true justice, there can be no true peace, no flourishing, no good pasture. No justice, says Ezekiel, no peace. So I wonder if you would think with me for a moment about these two faces of Christ, the mild king and the stern king, and particularly about this king who sits in judgment. And I should say at the outset that there are deep, deep mysteries here that I do not presume to begin to fathom. So my goal is not to explicate this passage, really, but simply to struggle with it. And I hope that for a few minutes you'll struggle with me. So one of the ways that I approach the issue of judgment is by reflecting on my own, and more broadly, humanity's consistent lack of justice in our own judgments. Growing up, I watched quite a few lawyer movies with my dad, and as long as I can remember, I've always been really disturbed by criminal justice systems and the possibility of error. I particularly remember a black and white film called 12 Angry Men about the jury on a murder trial with capital punishment at stake. As I've grown older, I've realized that the questions this film raises are unfortunately very current. A recent report by the Equal Justice Initiative, for example, has confirmed just how unequally and inconsistently the death penalty is applied in the United States. A mere 2% of all counties nationwide are responsible for 56% of the inmates currently on death row as well as 52% of those executed. And there is clear and compelling evidence that race plays a substantial role in these disparities. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, whose compre comprehensive data begins in 1989, innocent black people are about seven times more likely to be convicted of murder than innocent white people. And this is more extreme in Southern states like Georgia where people convicted of killing white victims are 17 times more likely to be executed than those convicted of killing black victims. In 1987, the US Supreme Court reviewed a challenge to Georgia's death penalty, McCleskey versus Kemp, on the grounds of an investigation that demonstrated this very disproportionality in Georgia. 
and the court accepted the investigation, but turned down the challenge to the death penalty because, and I quote from the ruling, apparent disparities in sentencing are an inevitable part of our criminal justice system. And this ruling is still considered current and binding. So when I find myself put out by the image of Christ sitting in judgment, I think of this truly criminal state of our justice system in order to remember the hope that lies in the promise of clear-eyed judgment. I think of people like Anthony Ray Hinton, a black man who spent 30 years on Alabama's death row for a crime he never committed. Hinton was tried in 1985 by a prosecutor who claimed he could tell Hinton was guilty from the way he looked. And he was defended by a lawyer who couldn't bother the court to hire a trained examiner to inspect the bullet in question, and instead relied on a visually impaired civil engineer who openly admitted he could not even operate the weapon. After three decades, the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences confirmed that the engineer's alleged bullet match the sole piece of evidence on which the jury convicted Hinton was straightforwardly false. So Hinton was released on April 3rd, 2015. He looked around at his family and friends and said, the sun does shine. So this is how I begin to understand the hope of Christ's judgment. When we pray for God's kingdom, and when we pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we're praying against. And this vile miscarriage of justice alludes to the cosmic reversal enacted in Matthew's account. The king who sits on the throne of his glory has been all along hidden within those abused by earthly powers. Just as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me, rightly or wrongly. I find C.S. Lewis helpful here. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he makes the bold claim that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. The title of his sermon alludes to 2 Corinthians, but in turn, these both evoke the Hebrew word kavod, which is commonly translated into English as glory, but literally refers to heaviness or weight. And kavod is used in many other contexts to mean honor, respect, or especially dignity. God's kavod, or glory, transcends the individual kavod, or dignity, of human beings. But the latter finds its source and its ultimate referent in the former. That is, God's glory manifests, or in Matthew, is hidden within the inviolable dignity of the widow, the orphan, the refugee, and the stranger. In the justifiably famous words of Gerard Manley Hopkins, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. Now, it is impossible for a vision like this, a realization like this, to leave our social and political relationships unchanged. In Lewis's apt words, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is in light of our neighbor's glory that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, 
all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, end quote. This has deep resonance with the witness of scripture, and I think particularly of Isaiah 58, where God spurns Israel's fasting and religious observances and says, is not this the fast that I choose? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. It's, it's honestly difficult for me to even wrap my mind around what's being promised here. The same word kavod that's used to refer to that brilliance which Moses is not allowed to see when God covers the cleft in the rock with his hand as he passes by in Exodus 33, that same word describes the light that shall attend that community which covers the naked and gives bread to the hungry. I'm not really making any systematic claim here. I am not a biblical scholar nor a theologian, um, but I'm simply observing how the biblical text shapes our imagination to locate God's glory in a society that takes proper care of its poor. This is the great insight of the song we sang just before the gospel, Little Things with Great Love. Verse three talks about the deeds forgotten and the works unseen. And we read, every tender mercy you're making glorious. This is where, while we wait for the last judgment, Christ's majesty is hidden. This is where we find the splendor. This is where we find God's power, chiefly in the works of mercy that break into the coldness of human systems and touch the weary with the warmth of God's kingdom. We find his glory in the works of mercy that break through the logic of the way of nature and usher in the way of grace. So of course it's Christ and his spirit that make these works of mercy glorious. It's the indwelling of the spirit that makes them into signposts along the way of grace, that makes them into evidence of a new order of being that both transcends human nature and also lifts us up and transforms what it means to be truly human. In other words, it's true that Christ has yet to descend in all his glory. The final judgment is yet to come. Nonetheless, Christ is among us. And in fact, Christ surrounds us. While we wait, Christ's throne of glory is not the clouds. It's the broken bodies of those chewed up and spit out by a criminal justice system, or those who just can't make ends meet. For now, your neighbor is Christ's throne of glory. We are becoming the people we will be when he comes with all the angels. The way we relate to Christ as he's hidden in the form of our neighbor has a very real impact, a real relationship on the way we will relate to Christ in his unhidden majesty. Indeed, as Abby reminded us two weeks ago, with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the king is coming, but what happens in the meantime makes all the difference. It's not dead time. Christ is among us, and we are living an eternal reality today. 
So with all that said, take a breath for a moment. If you're anything like me, this can all be a bit frightful or a lot frightful because of the ways I have consistently failed to care for my neighbor. So even though this is not treated explicitly in our readings, I do want to close with a brief word on repentance. In the chapter before today's Old Testament reading, the Lord says to Ezekiel, the righteousness of the righteous shall not save them when they transgress. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, it shall not make them stumble when they turn from their wickedness. Lest we isolate a passage like the sheep and the goats and come away with the impression that our eternal destination depends on a running tally of all our interactions, this passage, among many in scripture, reminds us that it's not a tally, but the turning from righteousness or wickedness that distinguishes sheep from sheep. In Hebrew, this turning is, of course, teshuvah, or repentance which very much refers to a concrete change in behavior. This chapter of Ezekiel does give a specific example of Teshuvah. Quote, if the wicked restore the pledge and walk in the statutes of life, they shall surely live. The pledge in this context is essentially a security deposit on a loan. So repentance for these lenders means giving the deposit back to those who cannot pay their dues. I don't think that the lesson for us is necessarily a particular financial action, but it very concretely locates repentance in the sphere of political and financial action, just like in the story of Zacchaeus from the Gospel of Luke. Remember, we are every day becoming the people we will be when Christ returns with the angels. We are not saved by our changed behavior. But repentance without any change is dead. So if we become a people of repentance, we will become people who treat our neighbor differently. We will become people who recognize the king in the bodies of the downtrodden. And indeed, we will become poor in spirit. And to such as these, Jesus says, belongs the kingdom of heaven. And finally, what I find perhaps most comforting of all is verse 16 of our Old Testament reading, where the shepherd promises to bring back the sheep who have strayed. When my own failings, my own falling short of the kavod, the glory of God, threaten to overwhelm me, I hear the voice of the shepherd king saying, I will rescue you. This passage, of course, anticipates the parable of the lost sheep in the Gospels, where the shepherd leaves his 99 to seek the one who'd wandered off. And in that parable, Jesus says that the company of heaven rejoices more at the one instance of repentance than at 99 instances of souls who need no repentance. The epistle to the Hebrews says that Christ endured his suffering for the sake of a great joy set before him. And the testimony of scripture is that you are that joy. Your heart sought by the one who restores all things and made new by repentance and forgiveness becomes the throne of glory on which the son of man sits. He will not let you fall. 
he will not let you wander forever, not with such a great joy at stake. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus and Christ our King, make us ready. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kyler, so much. So much to, so much to reflect on. Um, let us affirm our faith and say together the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, 